Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. All right, there we are. Let me invite you to pray with me. Father in heaven, this is such an important passage for us to get. And I pray that your spirit would illumine the eyes of our hearts to behold the severity and the kindness of the Lord. Father, this text makes us tremble and leap out of our seats for joy. I pray that we would come away from this message today um, treasuring, not being indifferent to, but treasuring more deeply, fully, the gift you have given us in your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Fred. I'm part of the team here at Christ City Kitsilano. And if you're a visitor with us this morning, welcome. Uh, we already had a little sermon from uh, Brandt. <laughs> no, he did a great job. Thank you for that. Um, the passage that Emmalina just read for us is, as I said, an important passage. And twice in that passage, I don't know if you picked it up, But twice in the passage, in verse 5 and in verse 8, Paul says, By grace you have been saved. He says that twice. And so this morning what I want us to do is to look at Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, in order to understand what it means to be saved. We shouldn't assume we understand what that means. Now, there's so many different places in the Bible we could go to. But as I thought about something that would launch us, you know, this fall, um, 
this passage came to my mind again and again. I, I feel that some of us are, are foggy in our understanding of what it means to be saved. And so I hope to clarify some of that for you this morning, if that's where you're at. Now, before we turn to look at Ephesians 2, I, I want to say uh, two clarifying things. In this passage, Paul talks about salvation, as I just said, twice in the past tense. He says, you have been saved. He uses the past tense. But it's important to point out that that is not the only way in which the New Testament talks about our salvation. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15.2, Paul uses the present tense. He says that believers are being saved. The present tense. And then over in Romans 5.9, he speaks about those who shall be saved in the future, at the end of the age. Now, I want to just clarify this for you. Those are not three different groups of people. Those are not three different ways of salvation. This is the way we we need to get a picture of salvation as as a whole. The New Testament teaches that the salvation that has occurred for us in the past is being worked out presently, and it will be completed for us in the future, at the end of the age. Now, if you're a theological nerd here this morning, I hope there's a few of you. um, Let me just say that those three tenses, past, present, and future of our salvation, they correspond to what the New Testament teaches elsewhere. They correspond with justification, sanctification, and glorification. Their theological nerds are happy. Now, that was the first thing I wanted to clarify. Second thing I want to clarify is, is much more general. It's about this, this word, salvation. Um, that's just such a churchy word, isn't it? Salvation. Um, in our secularized, post-Christian culture, we just don't hear that word being used at all anymore, do we? Salvation is, I think, to most people's ears, it's an out-of-date word. It's an out-of-touch religious word. But let me just say this. I assure you this. Secular culture continues to offer up many and various different versions of salvation even if they don't like using the word. Don't be fooled. Instead of using the religious language, our culture prefers to use therapeutic terminology. Much of our culture's ideas of redemption and salvation show up in the guise of therapeutic terminology. So, for example, the pervasive influence of the the self-help or self-improvement movements um, are an example of that. So, secular people in our culture are not seeking salvation. 
Nowadays, they're seeking self-realization or self-fulfillment or self-actualization. I heard another one on the radio this week. I've forgotten what they said. Here's my point. Everybody, everybody without exception believes in some sort of salvation. If you don't believe me, let's talk afterwards. We'll find out what your soteriology, that's another one for the, uh, the theological nerds, because that's the doctrine of salvation. I forget, I won't explain it. Um, we'll find out what your soteriology is. It's easy to discover. Everybody, without exception, believes in some sort of salvation. The Bible The Bible is God's revelation of us, not of us, to us, of our salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's a summary of the biblical message. Very short summary. Our culture, on the other hand, tells us that salvation is a do-it-yourself project. And that means that from within ourselves, we have to discover meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. How's that working out? How's that working out for us? See, unless you're just have no clue, who is capable? Who? on earth is capable of such a monumental task. That would require such incredible hubris that we should all just laugh at that. How can we, from within ourselves, determine meaning and purpose and fulfillment? I mean, I don't know about you, but the sort of things that I thought were fulfilling when I was 21... By the time I was 23, I was like, what on earth were you doing, idiot? You know, what, what, what fulfills us? It, it, that moves around. That's, that's like a shifting shadow. That's like a vapor. It's here, it's there, it's gone. Boy, this, is, this self-salvation project, it's not working out. I would suggest to you, gently, that the epidemic of anxiety and depression and loneliness that we see pervasive throughout our culture is is maybe an indication that the self-salvation project that secularism calls us to is is not working. That's all by way of introduction. What I want to do now is look in with you at Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. I have three points. First, What are we saved from? Second, what are we saved by? And third, what are we saved for? So let's begin by looking at what Paul tells us about what we are saved from. Look at verses 1 to 3. Please listen carefully. He writes, And you were dead in the the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, a reference to Satan, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, before we look at this devastating diagnosis, I need you to understand something very important. This here is a description of the universal human condition. This is a description of the universal human condition apart from the saving grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is not picking on a, a, or singling out a particularly evil, bad group of people. He is describing all people for all time, everywhere, apart from the grace of God. Look at verse 3. Paul even includes himself. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul was this this, um, hyper-qualified, hyper-faithful, religious, pharisaical Jew, and he includes himself here. He says of himself in Philippians 3 that as to his keeping of the law, he was fine. He was perfect. And that's what Paul says about himself. So I have three things I want us to see from these verses. Verses 1 to 3. Three things. First of all, before the grace of God got a hold of us, We were dead. Look at verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, I know this sounds like something out of a zombie movie. But Paul's not using a clever figure of speech here. He is describing the condition of humanity in our universal rebellion against the God who created us in His own image. See, apart from the grace of God, all of us, without exception, are spiritual corpses. You see, because of the sin of our first parents and the the sin and guilt that we've all inherited from them, All human beings are dead in their trespasses and sins. See, instead of living to please God with our lives, what do we do? Well, we live to please ourselves. Both Augustine and Martin Luther describe sin as being inwardly turned on ourselves away from God. That's a good description of sin. We, we turn in on ourselves. We're, we're radically self-referential and we ignore the triune, creator, holy, personal God. We're turned in. We're not supposed to live for ourselves. I don't know. Hopefully I'm, I'm not informing anyone there. 
We're not supposed to be selfish. But that's the way we live. That's the way we think. You see a picture? Our eyes look at ourselves. We love ourselves. The problem is not that we don't love ourselves enough. The problem is that we can't stop loving ourselves completely over the top all the time. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We're created for something so much more. Paul builds on this this first point with a second diagnostic insight. Before the grace of God got a hold of us, we were not only dead, we were enslaved. Look at verses 2 and 3. We were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. See, unless, unless the Lord sets us free, we're not only dead, but we are in bondage to three things here. Paul highlights three things. The world, which I talked about last week, is we're living in a present evil age. The world, 1 John 4.19, is under the power of the evil one. So we're enslaved to the world. We're enslaved to the devil, which he refers to as the prince of the power of the air. And we're enslaved to our flesh. These are dark spiritual forces. These are the dark spiritual forces that work together in order to to oppress you and enslave you. And unless the grace of God sets us free, we are enslaved. The problem is, as Paul points out, we are eager accomplices in our own captivity. Our fallen, self-centered nature, what Paul calls our flesh, it makes us willfully blind to the diagnosis of this disease. We put our fingers in our ears and we go, la, 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 I'm not listening. Some of you are doing that right now. I know this is not... I tremble to say these things. But some of you are somewhere else in your minds. And you need to hear this. This is serious. This is, this is terrifying. Because we refuse to believe that we are spiritually enslaved, we're unwilling to to see and to trust and to love the only one who can set us free. That's the one I want to hold out to you this morning. We're getting there. You see, here's the thing. I think about... Think about culture a lot and and this description of culture and what it has to say about our culture. See, instead of us, human beings, admitting to God that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and crying out for His mercy, instead of admitting that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, what we have done is we have boldly declared that God is dead. 
And then we've reorganized our whole society around that secular creed. Because that's what it is. And it's not working. See, there's so many contradictions in our culture and in our psyche. There are just so many and so great. We, we can't go on ignoring it. James Hunter, a Christian uh, professor and sociologist, he summarizes the unworkability of this situation in his book titled The Death of Character. Moral Education in an Age Without Good or Evil. Here's what he writes. See if you think this fits. We want character, but without unyielding conviction. We want strong morality, but without the emotional burden of guilt or shame. We want virtue, but without particular moral justifications that invariably offend. We want good without having to name evil. We want decency without the authority to insist upon it. We want moral community without any limitations to personal freedom. In short, we want what we cannot possibly have on the terms that we want it. See, this is the kind of disorder, this is the kind of insanity, this is the kind of confusion that results when the father of lies is busily at work in the world. Third thing, before the grace of God got a hold of us, we were condemned. Paul says in verse 3, that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're not just dead in our sins. We're not just in bondage to the world, the devil and the flesh. We are under God's wrath. Now, I get it. This is not easy. This is not, this is not easy to hear. But let me just say this. I think sometimes, and I will not do this, I hope not. I think sometimes we think of the wrath of God as it's kind of the way we think about that weird eccentric uncle in our extended family. You know, if we, if we just ignore it, maybe, maybe it'll go away. Maybe everyone will just forget about it. Well, we can't do that. We can't ignore the wrath of God. We cannot pretend it isn't there because it is and it's not going away. The wrath of God is not some sort of dark side of God's personality. Rather, as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, wrath is the settled hostility of God's holy will towards everything that rebels against him. Therefore, when you hear about the wrath of God, don't think of God sort of um, ranting and raving and flying off the handle in some sort of cosmic fit of rage. That's not what the Bible is talking about. God's wrath is his righteous response, his 
the response of his justice toward our sin. Now, the New Testament teaches in Romans uh, 1 to 3 that some of the wrath of God is even, is even being manifest now in our world. But that's not what Paul is looking to here. In, 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 in Ephesians 2, Paul is anticipating what I think earlier generations of Christians might have called the day of judgment. That's a popular subject in our culture. Maybe in some, in some pictures, you know, in some of these uh, apocalyptic pictures. It's amazing how apocalyptic doomsday scenarios are so popular in the movies. Perhaps we're, perhaps we're thinking about, perhaps something's on our minds. Well, we can read about this. This is an apocalyptic description of this in Revelation 6. Here's what it says. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can withstand it? Who can withstand this great and terrible day? I know this is heavy. Probably you don't want to hear it. But just think with me for a moment, please. Without the bad news of God's wrath, The good news about Christ's cross makes no sense whatsoever. Here's what John Stott says. The cross can be seen as proof of God's love only, only when it is at the same time seen as proof of his justice. You can't have one or the other. They go together. If we do not understand the justice of God, the wrath of God, the cross of Jesus Christ makes no sense whatsoever. I'm getting ahead of myself a bit here, but this is so important. God is absolutely just and he will not allow our sin to go unpunished. He's not going to just sort of sweep it under the cosmic carpet of the universe. He will deal with it. He must deal with it. His justice demands it. Pastor Greg Gilbert exposes the kind of dilemma we face if we minimize or deny God's justice. Here's what he writes. I don't have a slide for it. He says, it's always interesting to watch what happens when people who insist that God would never judge them, come face to face with undeniable evil. Confronted with a truly horrific evil, then they want a God of justice, and they want him now. 
They want God to overlook their own sin, but not the terrorists. Forgive me, they say, but don't you dare forgive him. You see, nobody wants a God who declines to deal with evil. They just want a God who declines to deal with their evil. We can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. God cannot judge the evil of others and let you off the hook. We must come to the sober realization that God's justice includes his justice against me for my sin. Now, that's what we're saved from. I know that's been heavy. But I want to turn our attention to what we're saved by. Take a look with me to Ephesians 2, 4 to 9. Please let these verses wash over you. But God. I love how Emelina emphasized those two most wonderful words when she read the passage. But God. I mean, imagine this. The doctor says you have terminal stage four cancer. But we've just discovered a miracle cure. All of a sudden, boy, things changed. That's exactly what happens here. But God, verse four, but God, listen, let it hit you. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Those words, but God, it's like this beam of pure light just breaking through a dark bank of clouds, storm clouds. Yes, God's wrath is against us because of our sin. But that, my friends, that is not the end of the story. Yes, God is just. But God is also gracious. God is also merciful. And he has done for us what, what none of us could ever do for ourselves. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is not a self-salvation project. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of, of works so that none of us have anything to boast about. These are the terms and conditions of our salvation. You know the terms and conditions? You know, you get a new uh, computer and and nobody reads them. Here it is. Very, two, two verses. 
Those are the terms and conditions. Very simple. We are saved. You are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Give up the idea, please. Give up this silly notion that we can somehow save ourselves. We cannot earn ourselves by being good enough or or doing enough. Salvation is God's undeserved gift. That's what grace means. None of us. Me least of all. None of us have anything at all to boast in. All that we can do is receive the gift of God's grace with an empty hand of faith and be forever grateful. That's the posture. Now, Paul does a wonderful thing here in this passage. He sort of takes the lid off of the gift for a moment and he lets us peek inside. Look at verses 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, it's just like a crescendo that's growing. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let me just say this, Christ City. God is not against you. God is for us. God does not want us to face the day of His wrath. That's why He sent His Son. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Look at He's rich. He is rich in His mercies. He has loved us, Paul says, with a great love, an extravagant love. His grace and kindness toward us, Paul describes as immeasurably rich. That's the word where we get the word hyperbole from. It's over the top. Do you hear the heart of God for you? The heart of a just and holy God towards sinners like you and me? This is his heart. He's he's putting it right out there on his sleeve for us. I can't get... This is amazing to me. Even when... Even when we were dead in our trespasses, it says that... Paul says that God made us alive together with Christ. That takes a little bit of explanation. See, Jesus... This is talking about the resurrection. We have to go back for a moment. Jesus was crucified for our sin on the cross. And in, in His crucifixion for us, in our place, the wrath of God, the justice of God, was fully satisfied. My sin on Him, He was punished for my sin, my sin completely gone, completely forgiven. It's called the great exchange. See, Christ was condemned in your place. Jesus bore the wrath that we deserve. 
Therefore, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, remember Revelation 6 when you hear this, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Christian, brothers and sisters, I tremble at reading Revelation 6 until I read 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Jesus delivers me. Jesus delivers you completely from the wrath that is to come. Why? Because He bore your wrath in your place by becoming sin for you. This is the gospel. And because Jesus died for our sins, He then rose from the dead victorious, demonstrating His victory over sin, His victory over Satan, His victory over death. He's the victorious King, He reigns, He rules, and He raises us up. This is Paul's point. He has raised us up with Him from the dead when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He has got a hold of us by His Spirit. He has raised us up with Him to new life. Ben, thank you so much. We hadn't talked about it. Put on the, the, uh, the word of... Um, Uh, encouragement today from Ezekiel. That's the new life. God will take out our heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. He'll put His Spirit in us. He'll write His law on, on our hearts and cause us to walk in His ways. We're free in Christ. We're free. This is the reality that must define us. If you're a Christian here this morning, You're no longer dead in your sins. You're alive. You're alive in Christ. You're no longer enslaved to the world and the devil and the flesh. You're now seated with Him, raised up with Him. Paul says in in Ephesians 1 that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has landed on us. This is true freedom. This is freedom from the penalty and the power of sin. This is freedom from guilt and shame and condemnation. This is freedom from the lies that lead us astray. And all of this is ours by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the terms. Those are the conditions. So let me ask you. Do you want this gift? Do you have this gift? Do you see your need to receive this gift? That's why I spent so much time on the first part. I am so thankful that the person that led me to Christ spent a lot longer on my sin and my bondage and my deadness and the condemnation that I faced. Because when he got to Jesus, I was well and truly ready. I'm so thankful I didn't have somebody come up and say, well, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life because guess what? I have a wonderful plan for my life too. And if he's going to help me do what I want to do, sure, I'll use him to get it. That is not the gospel. The gospel is frank and honest and in our face about the bad news before we can ever cling to and love and give ourselves completely to the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I don't know where I was. Let me encourage you, please. Receive this gift. It's a gift. It's rude not to accept it. Let me encourage you, please, to turn away, utterly forsake all the fruitless efforts that you have made and I have made in my life to somehow be good enough for God. Not going to happen. Let us all stop trying to earn God's love and God's favor. We can't. Let us instead look to the love of God and the favor of God and the mercy of God displayed for us in his crucified and risen son. That's your acceptance. That is our acceptance. Jesus is our life and our salvation. Jesus is our hope and our glory. Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. And Jesus is God's gracious gift. Paul says, God's immeasurable gift to all those who believe. I love what Eugene Peterson says. Faith in Christ is an act of abandoning the shores of self where we think we know where we stand and where, if we just try hard enough, we can be in control. Faith in Christ is a plunge into grace. Well, take a long time to do those. Let's go to the final point, what we are saved for. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation is not our achievement. It is God's. If you're a Christian, you are his workmanship. The word here is poema. It's the word that we get our word poem from. You are God's masterpiece. You are God's craftsmanship. You are God's work of art. Remember, as a little boy, I was with my family. We went to Florence, Italy, and we saw Michelangelo's David. Incredible. But it's funny how anyone who ever describes this, is it, it's Michelangelo's David. Not just David. Let's be clear. It's Michelangelo's David. If it was Fred's David, I don't think anyone would go anywhere to see that. Or Doug's David or Brant's David. Meh, no. But it's Michelangelo's David. And they come by the hundreds of thousands and millions every year. Because it's his great masterpiece. Right? And so are we. We are God's great masterpiece. We are created, recreated, if you like, in Christ Jesus in order to show off the work of God in our lives. That's why we live, to show off the work of God in our lives. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. See, our good works are just a display and a demonstration of God's great work in us. That's why in Matthew 5, 16, which we'll get to in a number of weeks, Jesus said, let your light so shine before others that they see your good works 
and say, boy, aren't you amazing? No, that's not what Jesus said. He said that they would see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. You see, people read the masterwork of God off our lives. People look at the David and think Michelangelo knew a couple of things about hitting marble and making sculptures. David is a tribute to Michelangelo's genius. And our lives are a tribute to the grace of God. Now, I have clearly gone too far. So I'm going to wrap this up real fast. Let me just say this. This is an introduction for the Sermon on the Mount next week. This was all introduction for the Sermon on the Mount next week. If you want to know what it means to walk in the good works that God prepared for us to walk in, start next week. Because all of Matthew 5 through 7, we could go to Ephesians 4 to 6 and read a bunch of things. I had them here, but clearly I've run out of time. But let me encourage you. Matthew 5 through 7 is just a deep unpacking of what that looks like. What does it look like to to live out the work of God and the grace of God and the blessing of God in our lives? It's all there. So let's gather. Christ City, we are saved from so much. We're saved from the wrath of God. We're saved from bondage. We are saved from death. We're saved by God's grace through the gift of his son as we believe it and receive it. And we are saved to live. We are saved for for the works that bring glory and honor and praise to our father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, stir up our hearts, Lord. I pray that there would be nothing tepid about us. It is, it makes no sense at all for someone who confesses the name of Christ to be distracted, disinterested, lukewarm. Help us to see this great salvation. And press in with all our heart. Lord, I pray that you do a saving work in the hearts of those who do not know. Draw them in. Show them your great love. Show them your great mercy. Draw them in. Open the eyes of their hearts. They may see and believe and love the Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.